be able to uh, preach the word of God um, as we are convening um, again this week and sharing through um, the book of Acts. And uh, this particular sermon um, is, is really exciting because I think it's going to um, hit really home for a lot of us and and really look at the place that some of us may be in, some of us have been in and some of us will be in. And so I pray that this is going to be a message of um, hope and encouragement to you, but also of truth and love and grace, which you cannot um, distinguish those from the truth. So um, as we look, we'll be looking in Acts today again in Acts chapter 20. We're moving down to verse seven and you'll see the uh, sermon title is you've even seen defeating your doubt or destroying your doubt. Either one works perfectly. Um, but that's the, the key of the sermon is destroying or defeating doubt that we may have in our lives, defeating and destroying doubt that we may have in our lives. And if you um, are in this room and you have been a Christian for any particular time, then you have either faced doubt, you have either felt doubt or you have had to come to grips with doubt. And if you haven't, then that means you are currently facing doubt, you are feeling doubt, and you are currently coming to grips with doubt that you may have. And what I hope today is that you don't feel alone in the fact that you have doubt in your heart. I don't want you to feel like you're on this island by yourself and that you're the worst possible person because you feel like you have doubt. Now, should we doubt? No. We shouldn't doubt. We should not have doubt in our hearts or in our heads. Will we doubt? Absolutely. We're going to doubt because we are afflicted with our own fallenness of sin. And so what we want to do is understand that when we fail to trust God, there are realistic ways, very practical ways that we can restore our hope in the truth and and escape the grips of doubt. So if nothing more, we should know going in and coming out of this sermon that all scripture is not only breathed out of the mouth of God, but all scripture is equally profitable and it all reassures us in some sort of way of our faith. Now, how does it do that? I can tell you how it doesn't. We are not reassured in our faith by taking scriptures and like interjecting ourselves into it. It's like, oh, no, that's about me. No. All scripture in some sort of way is pointing us back to Jesus. All scripture in some sort of way is pointing us back to our true hope. So, no, you don't need to find yourself in the text. In every text, I would say we need to find Jesus. We need to find how this points us back to our true hope, our everlasting and eternal hope. Not only do you have doubt, but so do skeptics. And my hope is that today for the believers in the room that I will offer some hope to you and give you some comfort for your doubts. But I also hope that I can give you some answers for the skeptics as well. So we're looking at Acts chapter 20 and we're going to verse number seven, Acts 20, verse number seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer and being overcome by sleep he fell down from the third store and was taken up dead but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said do not be alarmed for his life is in him 
And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, the truth of Scripture. We thank you that you have given us an answer for our doubts. And do we have doubts? Yes. But is there an answer to those? Absolutely. So, God, if there is anybody in this room who is either doubting you or doubting that you love us or doubting that you have our, our best in mind, God, help us see that our best is not necessarily what you have in mind, but also that you do care about us. You do love us and that you have given us scripture to reassure us of that, to comfort us in all our doubts. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So. I know you're thinking, how in the world does a text about Eutychus, which I'm sure you are somewhat aware of, how in the world does a text about Eutychus help us deal with our issues of doubt? I mean, if you think about it, if we're talking specifically about doubt, the reality is here we have just another miracle where somebody is purportedly raised from the dead. And if anything, when people read texts like this, they will probably have an issue with it like this will probably not help you in your doubt if you're saying okay here we have another person who died and is claimed to be raised from the dead that doesn't help you in your doubt we hear about all these amazing things but if we're being honest some of it actually seems too good to be true listen after all this all these people are seeing these things that we never had the luxury of seeing We are not seeing men and women be raised from the dead, are we? We read about these and think there is a real chance that all of this stuff could just be a fabrication. This could all just be made up. And if we're being honest, if I'm having doubt in my faith, I'm not going to the Bible to read about some random kid that supposedly died and was supposedly raised back to life. That's not going to be a good answer for my doubt, is it? Not if I start there, but it's not a bad place to start. I want you to notice how Luke writes and how he is using a personal pronoun here. He keeps saying we. He keeps mentioning we here in this text. Now, you notice that much of what we have read up to this point has been narrated by Luke. But many of the things that he is giving us, he's actually pulling from the account of Paul. So there's much of what he writes about that he doesn't actually witness, but rather is being dictated to him by the account of Paul. But this text is different. It's not like that, is it? He is using personal pronouns here. What does that mean? Luke, so we're clear, Luke was not a disciple of Jesus while Jesus' ministry was happening. In fact, it is very likely that Luke, being a Greek, Not even a Jew probably never even saw or heard of Jesus while Jesus ministry was actually happening. At some point after Jesus death, burial and resurrection, he would have been converted and it wouldn't be unlikely that he was actually converted by the preaching of Paul, who was preaching while he was just in the area. And that probably explains here why Luke latches on so tightly to the ministry of Paul. So what does it mean? That means that the man who is writing Acts has something in common with all of us. He only heard of Jesus being raised from the dead, too. 
He only heard about it, too. He didn't see it. He didn't witness it. He never saw anything. Yet he believes. What could take a Greek intellectual physician and make him drop his career for the sake of the gospel, especially the gospel, according to a man in Jesus whom he didn't know anything about. For Luke, there were just too many testimonies of people who actually saw it that convinced him that it actually happened. So let me give you some reasons that should destroy any doubt that you have. So our first point today is the historicity of the accounts, the historicity of the accounts. Now, that is just a big word to say that these things are historically proven. These things are proven to us. Now, I think most of you are aware that my undergrad degree is in history. And one of the things that you learn as you pursue a degree in history is that there are two types of sources. There are primary sources and then there are secondary sources. A secondary source, you've, already, you've all probably read a secondary source. It's something like a biography. It's not an autobiography, but it's a biography. It's somebody else writing based on the account of other people. They write about the life of somebody else based on primary sources. So they weren't actually at the event, but they're relying on people who were present at the event. That's one case. You have a secondary source. They rely on other people to help them tell the story. But a primary source is someone who was present specifically for that event. They are a first-hand witness of whatever happened. Now, we learned that not every primary source that claims to be primary is actually reliable, so what do you do? In history, they teach you. You scrutinize people's accounts. You all, you see it on, like, First 48 CSI, Law and Order, when they're interrogating somebody and Mike says... They say, Mike, where were you on, you know, this day when so-and-so was killed? Mike says, oh, I was over at Keisha's house. She was having a party. Now, they don't just believe him blindly, but they go first to Keisha, and then they go to all the partygoers to validate the fact that what he's saying is actually true. Now, could all of those people be lying? Absolutely. But the reality is that it's probably a solid alibi if all these people can testify that he was there and that they saw him. So it's likely that they aren't lying. So let's think about this with the account of a young man that we have been told has been raised from the dead. First of all, I'll submit to you. Let's look at the details. Let's look at the details. Luke tells us that they are gathering on a Sunday because Paul is going to be leaving out on a Monday. And so he actually preached from Sunday all the way into Monday morning until midnight. Those are some very specific details, but that's not it. He also includes this interesting detail that we should notice because it's one of those things that we would notice in an account as well. It's not important to the story at all, except it's something we notice. He says, but there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. That is such a random thing to mention. Now, I can describe to you what's happening. So this is probably the house of somebody who was well off and it was three stories and where they were gathering we don't know how many people there were but in the upper chamber the third story that's where they were gathering and as the sun started to go down I guarantee you Luke probably started looking around and was like there's a whole bunch of lamps in this room that's something we would do 
It's like, dang, they got a lot of lamps in his house. Just a random thing that he noticed, but it's something that triggered in his mind. And so as he's writing this, he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that's the house that had all the lamps. There's no need for the detail, but it's an observation that he makes. This is where I want to focus now. He says there's a young man there named Eutychus. Now, the word here used for young man, I've always kind of imagined that he was much older, but he's probably about from eight to no older than about 14 years old. We don't know exactly, but I do want you to think about what happens here. In the previous verses, Luke mentions where Paul is. So let's think about some details that we have. We know that they're in a house. We know they're in a house that has at least three stories. We know they're in a house that has three stories and a bunch of lamps. We know that there was a young man there present named Eutychus. We know exactly where they are. They mentioned in the past few verses they're in Troas. And then he mentions that they are there during the feast of the unleavened bread. Not only do we know where we are, where they are. Not only do we know that Eutychus was there. Not only can we probably pinpoint the house because not everybody had a three story house. We also know that they're there in the spring. Because that's when they had the feast of the unleavened bread. Luke has given us facts. Luke has given us straight facts because he's welcoming anybody who's reading this account while all this was still happening. Come scrutinize it. I guarantee you there were not that many people with three story houses and a lot of lamps in the area of a young man who was dead and was raised. I bet you could have gone right to the house. Why is it important? I want you to think about when these things were actually written down. When they were written down, these people were still alive. These folks weren't dead. When he's writing this account, these people are still around. And even if some of them perhaps had died, you know who probably was still alive? Eutychus. Because he was so young when he was raised back from the dead, he still would have been alive as well. Now, I don't know what, but... I do tend to think that we think that people in the Bible days are like dumber than we are now. But you can almost argue that they would have been more skeptical about this account than anybody, specifically if it was coming from somebody as questionable as Paul. And it was coming from this crazy guy who gave up being a doctor to go follow Paul around. Of course, they would have wanted to scrutinize this account. These people weren't dumb at all. All you would have had to do is go back to Troas and like, all right, where is Eutychus? That's all they would have had to do. If you get there and they say, who? You, you, who? Automatically, boom, we know it's a lie. There is no Eutychus. And I guarantee you, if this account is a lie, it never makes it into the Bible. Because we would know far beyond that, that, oh, yeah, they made that up. Let's get rid of it. But that's not what happened. That's one element. But the other element is that we have to consider that Luke saw it firsthand. Luke did not have the luxury of witnessing much of what Paul did or what Jesus did. But this account, he actually did see firsthand. He is our primary source here. He saw a boy fall three stories and was dead. Now, some of you may like, maybe he one dead. Three stories ain't that far. I'm sure they ain't have like. Three, three stores like we have. Maybe he wasn't dead. But I want you to think about this. I can imagine when he falls, somebody goes, is there a doctor in the house? That's actually probably where the term started, right? It's like, and they're searching for a doctor. And oh, can we find, wait a minute. Luke is a doctor. 
So just in case somebody said, well, maybe he wasn't really dead. Maybe he just passed out. The person who would have been the one to validate it would have been Luke. Luke was the physician in the house. So we know that if anybody wanted to, they could have gone and found these people to disprove that this was a lie. We also know that the person who was writing this could have said whether or not the boy was actually dead and he knew he was dead. So the second reason that we shouldn't doubt is that this points us to Jesus. This account inevitably is actually pointing us back to Jesus Christ. Ultimately for us, this is the reminder. We are not just pointed to Jesus because he is raised and a miracle is performed, but it is also in the fact that Eutychus died. Sickness and death and accidents and calamity are all reminders to us that there is sin in the world and it should remind us of the purpose of Jesus coming in the first place. Now, I've brought this up before, but it's always good to remind you that when he hears about Lazarus dying and he cries, he's not crying because Lazarus died. But it's a reminder that the fact that death and sickness happens is ultimately what Jesus came to do, which is to take away the sin that leads to sickness and death. That he was going to have to endure the punishment that was meant for us on the cross and be our substitutionary atonement. So he weeps for that. So we can look at the death of Cain or we can look at the almost death of Isaac or any other death in the Bible and know that it is a signpost for us. And it is all pointing us back to Jesus. See, in the Bible, death is not just death. But rather, death is the reminder of the gospel to us. How does this destroy our doubt? Because if Jesus was testified to us as the Savior, as the Messiah, who would suffer for our sakes without Jesus, then Eutychus is just another tragic death that we read about. But even his death, if he isn't resurrected, shouldn't give us hope because even if Eutychus isn't resurrected, you know who was? Jesus. Jesus was. David prophesied that Jesus would not see corruption and that his, he would establish his kingdom beforehand and it would be an eternal and everlasting kingdom. Now, whether we accept as a fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, we must in some way acknowledge that thousands of years before he appears, he was testified of and spoken about. And even Isaiah writes and prophesies that he was going to be our suffering servant who would bear our sins on the cross. That he would bear in his body the death that was meant for us. Seeing Eutychus die in his own way is a reminder that because of sin, because of my sin, I deserve to die. I deserve death. I have fairly and rightly earned my spot in hell, eternally separated from God because of my sin. That's what death should remind me of. But it's not just that I deserve to die, but it should also remind me, but God. 
But by the death of Jesus Christ, I have escaped the wrath of God. That's what death should remind us of. Yes, we see a miracle happen, but we have to also remember that at some point later in life, you know what happened to Eutychus? He died. He still died. Should we trust in God any less that death happens? No, because we must remember that death, even death, is a signpost that any way that I die, no matter how tragic it could be, is not the death that I have fairly earned. But every time I stand on over every casket, every eulogy that I preach, I'm reminded that I deserve that and far worse. But Jesus Christ on the cross took the penalty in my place. But God. If there was any doubt. Regarding any of this. We must realize that death is no longer the equalizer. The beautiful thing about Paul's work here is that when he sees him, he says, do not worry for his life is in him. How could he be so sure that this boy would be raised? How could he know? Because ultimately. Paul had an encounter with the risen Lord. And he knew that if Jesus be raised then our preaching is not in vain. How he interacted with these people and this dead child was directly impacted by what he knew regarding Jesus. If there was any doubt at all, then he wouldn't have felt compelled to do anything. But there was no doubt. What we feel to be true about God directly affects what we do in life. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ hung in your place on the cross, then it has to affect the way that you live. It has to. And that's why John says in first John, if you say that you've been born of God and you keep practice and sin you are a liar because no one who has been born of God and truly knows what it took for my salvation would continue aimlessly in sin disregarding the death of Jesus what we feel to be true about God directly affects how we live. Now, listen, I say that, but I need to make this clear. In case we have any Pentecostal charismatic, please don't walk up to caskets commanding those people to come out of the caskets. I beg you. That is not what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is how has the way you believe what you know to be true about God, how has that changed the way that you live? And I don't mean in the broad sense. I mean, every day when you wake up, when you have interactions with your family, when you have interactions with your coworkers, your friends, when none of us are around, when none of us are watching, you may say, I trust God. But if you live a life of doubt, you say, well, I don't live like I doubt. If you live a life of sin, you live a life of doubt. 
That's the truth. Not just doubting that he's real, but you also doubt that there is judgment for our lives. So how does your trust in God shape how you live? I want you to think personally about that. How does my trust in God shape how I live? Maybe I should ask you this. How does your doubt shape how you live? When you read about a man being raised from the dead, does that remind us of how we were how we were raised from the deadness of our own sins? Our third and final point, the comfort of Scripture. The third reason why we should not doubt is the comfort of Scripture. It says and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive. And we're not a little comforted. Our final reason for destroying doubt is found in the response that the people had here when they witnessed this event. The Bible says that they were comforted. Why do we think they were comforted? Why? They were comforted because they saw that Paul could demonstrate the very evidence that he was, in fact, sent by God. And that the testimony of what he said about God was being revealed in what he was able to do. Yes, they are grateful that by the power of God, Eutychus has been raised back to life. But now think about the testimony of the goodness of God they now all have. I mean, think about in that area, all the people who witness it. It's hard to worry, you know, is God able And you think, of course, God is able. Remember what happened with Eutychus. What about if you wonder, hey, does God really care about us? Like things are not going as well. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Remember what happened with Eutychus. All of these people now have a testimony of the goodness of God. They remember, of course, I remember what he did for Eutychus. Of course, if he cares about Eutychus, I know he cares about me. If that can be the testimony of these people here for the one miracle that they've seen. What about us who have the whole recognized canon of scripture? Think about it. When Thomas comes after comes to Jesus after he was risen, he tells him, look, I see you, but I need proof. I need evidence that you really are who you say you are, that you have really been raised from the dead. I need to see your hands and all the other evidence of your fleshly wounds so that I can know that you truly are Jesus who's been raised from the dead. And then Jesus says something interesting to him. He says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What makes us blessed, though we've not seen? Many people think, well, it's not fair. If I could see all that they saw, I know I would believe they saw Jesus in the flesh. And guess what? Thomas still needed more evidence. You would absolutely doubt. I would absolutely doubt. So why are we blessed for believing? Because we have even more than what they had. They had 
Jesus being raised from the dead. They had Eutychus being raised from the dead. They don't have the fact that the Old Testament prophesies to us that Jesus was going to come and be the Messiah. They don't have the full, completed word of God that we have that gives us the full assurance of our faith. We not only have their accounts, but we even have their doubts. And we have all of the evidence, Genesis to Revelation, that Jesus, who was testified to us in the Old Testament, was revealed to us in the New Testament as the true Savior. Let alone, let us not forget about the personal experiences that we all also share. All of the wonderful things that we have seen God do in our lives, save the fact that he has redeemed us. That means we have the luxury of looking at scripture with a bird's eye view and being able to see how perfectly God has not only orchestrated the past, but has perfectly orchestrated all of human history because he is sovereign in charge and in control. And this takes away my doubt because that means that when I get into the thralls of my life, when I get into the thralls of every day, do I still trust God? Do I still trust him? Why should I trust God? What is the impetus for me trusting him? Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews that the whole world is held together by the word of his power. That means if God can hold together the whole world, By the word of his power, how much more can he do with my little feeble life? How much more held together can my life be if the God of the universe is keeping this this whole thing going? If God can get glory out of afflicting the righteous, then how much more should I trust him when I'm afflicted? If God can get glory out of bruising Jesus, how much more should I trust him for bruising me? If God can get glory out of the persecution of the saints, how much more should I trust him for persecuting me? If you are having doubts about where you feel like you are in life, If you're having doubts and if you're unsure about if God cares or not, I want you to remember this. Just remember this and we're done. God saw us in the wretchedness and the deadness of our sins. He saw that we were without him. We were his enemies. And yet his son was still slain in our place. Eutychus getting up, that's great. I'm thankful for that testimony. But I'm so grateful that Jesus got up. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you, God, that you have given us an answer. You have given us a response. You have given us a clue to how we can destroy doubt in our lives and 
God, it is very easy for us to be prone to doubt and not trust and and to be overcome with um, life and the and the world and our situation. But God, the reality is this is if you could so carefully and methodically plan out the whole course of my salvation. Before I was even thought of. And that even when I got here, you can still number the hairs on my head. That you've assigned the sun and the stars and the moon and the tides and the waters and the fish and the animals and all of us. You've assigned us to our place and that you're holding that together by the might and the strength of your word and your power. Lord, my little chewing gum life is easy for you. God, these little 30 years that I've lived are nothing to your glory. And it is no effort required on your part to hold me together. God, every bad situation, every bad circumstance, every sickness, every calamity, every tragedy. It's a reminder Not just that sin exists, but that Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. And that's the only reason we have to hope. That's the only thing that we can use to destroy and defeat doubt. So, God, I just pray as we will go on our journeys through the rest of our weeks and face different challenges that You will remind us, God, that you have taken away any cause, any reason you've given us for doubt and that we can wholly and fully trust in you. God, I just pray that this is spoken to the myriad situations specifically, God, if there's anybody struggling with doubt, struggling with reason, struggling with cause, that you're answering that today. It is in Jesus name we pray. Amen.